Hello, Daniel. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> How are you doing? All, all is well. I know we we just they always say um save the A material for before or for, for the for camera on camera. Um, uh, but for those who are listening or watching, uh Jeff and I just got to know one another and yeah. turns out we have some, I wouldn't say a similar background, but um your background in machinery and me working in the railroad. Just uh, it's interesting how the directions of life take you. And then here we are talking about RPGs, which is a great universal language, I feel, um, that that we all love. So I think I think what I love about games is like it kind of transcends like it transcends uh career, it transcends interest, it transcends gender, it transcends age, transcends generation. Um it's it's beautiful. And I'm, I'm really and thank you again for inviting me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you tonight. Well, yeah, and I and I've said I think it's the most it's one of the most it has a potential for be one of the most democratic, I think, of 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 activities. Uh-huh. And I, you know, it, it you know, it it would be nice if, you know, there I go to, you know, like game hole con various things, you see a large variety of people and you see people that weren't around in the in the um you know in the uh back in the day now you're seeing yeah. a large amount of women and such but it'd be nice as it, as it continues to become uh, uh more popular more people of different types will be uh joining in so i think that makes it a very healthy uh a very healthy thing for us all yeah what what edition did you start with of D? so i started with the uh the basic mm -hmm. uh so the uh, the mold is it the uh, Moldve? Uh, so BX like the basic yeah basic kit. expert yeah that's great so, yeah so I mean it was comic books 1981 I think is when we we tied it down and mm -hmm. then shortly thereafter it was uh, then it was AD and D um, and then we just started playing everything and anything so like everything we could possibly play we we'd buy yeah. and play so here we were talking about you're talking about um, it, we were talking earlier about mathematics and and using the uh, geometry that you you learned uh -huh. from uh, from Gary's, I you know similar here, but also uh, about the time that we were learning physics in high school, we we're playing Traveler and it had yeah. all these vector <laughs> rules and things like that. So yeah. we were we're getting out and trying to play physics with uh, with uh, with our games. So I love it. I I start so I started on. So I started in AD and D. I think it was 1987. In fact, I I, I think today this is the 50 year anniversary of D and D, and I realize I'm I'm 47, so I'm three years younger than the birth of D and D. Um, however, although we started with AD and D one E, we went backwards to BX and played BX for years until we moved back to second edition AD and D. Okay, so that's really really strange because yeah. you know it seemed like people when you're younger. And I've heard other people say is you you think basic is for kids. We're playing the advanced. Yes. Yeah. But you so what <laughs> in the world would prompt you to say, hey, let's just drop all the uh, you know, all this stuff and go with a an earlier version like that? I think so. I was always the I was always the the dungeon master. Um, I'm the one who bought initially bought the books. I'm the one who initially ran the games. And I remember getting my hands on the first like sets of modules and like you know what like i wonder if we can kind of remove some of the complexity because we had a lot of new players coming in um we played with a pretty group, big group of guys and girls in oak grove missouri and um we're like and we had some younger players too it's like well maybe we can try a different version of D D. and at the time i had no idea that there was really much of a difference save for the fact it was published in a different year 
So going back to D&D BX was interesting, uh, particularly because what we discovered along the way is that um, AD&D 1 and 2 is pretty easy to switch back and forth between. But when you go from AD&D to D&D BX, it's like a whole different, it's a whole different activity um, for translating modules. So we eventually, you know, I think like all, I think most people have probably eventually landed on the Immortal set and they're like, okay, we're done. Time to go back to AD&D 2nd E. And then that's where we kind of picked up our, probably when my gaming picked up to be a pretty much a bi-weekly thing when I was younger, um, up until my very early 20s. So, so you were playing once you're you sort of playing long campaigns. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. So I, I ran modules in D and D and I, and I had, I had the privilege of gaming with a, a gentleman um, out here in Kansas city named Robert Hamilton. And he was my first serious dungeon master. I was probably 15. I would already been playing D and D at this point for four years and he had developed this whole world and, and was kind of developing subsystems for AD&D. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm done playing modules. Like I've got enough of a story, I think, that I've built already. So I began building my campaign world. And and we've been gaming that campaign world since I was 15. Um, so I still play with some people I knew when I was younger. Um, and in fact, my dungeon master from when I was 15, his son is 26 and he now games with me. Uh, oh, that's neat. Yeah, it's great. And, and, and now my son, who's now seven is playing D and D with me. We're playing, we're playing BX or we're playing specifically, we're playing OSE. Right. But we're kind of layering in complexity. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see like, so I started my own campaign world. The people I started with, who kind of really taught me about like what D and D could be from a storytelling perspective. Like, that's what kind of sent me on this stint to like develop my own campaign. And it's been, like I said, we've been running the same campaign for years, long, long time. So we really just played for D and D. We just mostly went from module to module and occasionally somebody would do their own thing. Yeah. But, but we also played a lot of other things. And I, and I kind of, in some ways I, I, it's kind of sad that we never really, I, I never had the experience of playing like a year long campaign or a two year long campaign. So I, I really, I, I guess I, in some ways, I don't say I feel I, I missed out, but in some ways, part of me wishes, you know, that had been part of my experience, but uh, we just, we just couldn't stay, I guess, focused on <laughs> the game system for, for that long. It, and so in the town that I lived in, um, in Oak Grove, I think it was like maybe a population like 1400 is very, very small truck stop town. And there were three dungeon masters. There was myself, <clears throat> there was who became my dungeon master, Robert Hamilton, and another friend of mine, uh, Jason Walton. And Jason Walton was, he was the kind of DM that said, let's play a new system, let's play a new adventure, let's play a new module every month. So we were constantly making new characters. But in in for me, I always had like these long running campaigns and long story arcs. So we were running characters all the way to level 20 um, during um, our AD&D time. We had characters who were in their level, near level 30 during like the, D&D Immortals thing. And wow. Think, yeah. So I was always, is I really, I, I'm once again, I'm very blessed to still have a lot of people that I game with now, but many people I still game with remember the stories we were telling when we were like in our very early teens and kind of laying the groundwork for what um, would eventually ladder up to creating my own kind of RPG. But um, still to this day, like I run long-term campaigns. So as an example, um, we've been playing 
uh, Gangs of Cahabra, which is an RPG I'm working on right now. And we just completed our 17th session. Um, and it will probably go for another 20. Uh, prior to that, we played uh, 68 sessions of an adventure I wrote called Queen of Embers for Zweihander. Um, and prior to that, we played like a 22-session campaign. Um, one thing I've heard from my players is like, we want to do different campaigns more often. So now it's like, okay, every year uh, we'll switch and we'll do like a new story. So we kind of bring the current story, wind it down, then turn up a new game. And although we're not really playing D&D anymore, um, I still adhere to the... Uh, I love long-term campaigns. I don't play a lot of one shots. I don't play a lot of two to three shots. And um, I, I'm very lucky to have great players who can manage to get away from their lives and their wives and their husbands and their jobs on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights and, and, and just have fun telling a story together. I love Yeah. It. Playing twice a week would be amazing. Um, it only, the only reason I can do it, uh, and my wife is amazing. Um, so she, we have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. Um, I'm going to be a very elder parent when they graduate. Um, I run a game here on Wednesdays and they're down to sleep. So it's very easy to do. But on Sundays, I drive out to my friend's house about 30 minutes away at, at eight o'clock at night. So it's always after like everything is kind of wound down and so far so good. It's been going pretty well for the past year. Um, I think that may change in the near future. I'm kind of I'm kind of fretting to break the news to my friends, but I may have to like wind down my Sunday game in the next couple of months because of um, some kind of pretty big career changes. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least I hope it's exciting. Yes, yes. It's, it's all. It's it's a good one. It's a very good one. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. I, I found it's, it seems like I've always been able to generally. Uh, carve like one night a week and mm -hmm. for whatever reason there's a magic night that generally works uh with a group until it finally dissipates yeah. but um it's sometimes hard to figure find the right group of people and find whatever that that slot is but yeah we we only recently moved to an every other wednesday thing so what ends up happening is oh yeah so one wednesday night we'll do board games but that never happens so we just end up playing gangs behavior every week regardless so, <laughs> and we've got seven players. So we typically have anywhere from uh, from four to seven who show up. Um, so it's like a it's a it's a pretty pretty heavy. It's a it's a it's a pretty full table, but we inevitably end up playing every week anyway. So. Well, so how do you handle this? Is interesting. So I guess if you're doing like old school essentials, it's it's kind of easy just throwing in a couple yeah. extra mercenaries mm -hmm. uh, when the people aren't there. And um, but I guess how do you handle for your games where you actually where you have um, you know, that's a pretty big swing from four to seven. Yeah. Um, our, our kind of rule is that because our max table size is seven players plus myself, eight, the rule is that um, if we have four more players, we'll play. If we have three or less, we'll do board games. Um, and typically we have, I have a pretty good turnout and these are people who have created characters and kind of interwoven their, their characters into our kind of bro the broader story. I mean, right now, so Gangs of Cahaver, the game I've been writing for a while, is essentially like a medieval, it's like medieval gang warfare. So imagine like the movie The Warriors yeah. um, meets like Venice. So they've got this gang and they've been gathering, you know, all these different types of people, these other knaves who've joined them. So um, it's easy to float people kind of in and out as needed um, because they do have their kind of conquering gang territory in the city. And they have they make alliances with people they've defeated previously, so it's very easy to kind of interweave these people in and 
and because my players are like super dependable, which is rare, um, they're they they they're all in. So it's it typically I have a very full table, which is fun. So that's interesting because it seems like with um, yeah, uh, so Blades in the Dark uh, was a it's definitely not medieval, um, yeah, but the kind of gangs thing. Uh, Swords of Serpentine. I've not actually read. I thought about picking it up. That's kind of doing heists and different things in a sword mm -hmm. and sorcery environment. So yeah. it sounds like there's a, there's a lot of and I I think also would in D and D do some kind of a book on doing some heists. And a friend of mine has done some yeah. books on doing heists. So there's a lot of room for I think this type of gaming. And I'm surprised. Yeah. And maybe in some ways it hasn't been explored more than it has already. Yeah, we, I mean, even before I had started working on Zavoy Hunter, which is the the the, the system for Gangs Gehebro, we had been running Gangs Gehebro when we were playing AD&D 2nd Edition. So that was like one of my first kind of big spinoff campaign worlds was this city that's kind of a layer cake. And 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 although we had the kind of traditional dungeon crawly stuff like earlier on when I was younger, but now we're older. Now we're kind of, we we the way we kind of treat the game is almost like, Peaky Blinders, um, and where where it is highly political, it's less heisty and more so Sons of Anarchy. So, like in Gangs Gehebro, your horse is your motorcycle, and each gang uh, they don't hide through who they are. It's very much like the movie The Warriors from the seventies, where they wear their what they call their scheme, their well scheme, their way they wear their clothing, and they all dress the same uh, because it's 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 a city where you build respect and it's built up on the alliance you built within your gang. And also your, your way you dress is very important. So it's um, I think it's kind of a, an underserved an underserved style of gaming. And particularly because I was a child of the, I mean, a, a, my teenage years, I grew up like during like nineties gangster rap and all like, like all white kids. I loved it. And still to this day, um, there's a lot of influence of like early gangland culture in there, um, growing up poor and white and small rural community also influenced the way we kind of run our games too. So it's been this really interesting, um, we, the game has grown so much in, in so many different ways, especially moving beyond D and D where it pushes a very high fantasy and now using a very low fantasy, um, system. Uh, still we've managed to find like really interesting ways to kind of realize like this idea of like what it means to like run a game, be a game, not just go on like heist, but like to quite literally control territory. It's just like kind of a zoomed in portion where you're your character and the zoomed out where you're, you're kind of moving the chess pieces, so to speak in the city. That's interesting. So uh, I guess a question then would be, uh, I guess going back, like, like Freeport, was a setting that was ripe for that but they yeah. it was just so much information it didn't really provide a mechanism to do the yeah. cool stuff it just and, says here's a bunch of stuff figured yes. out so so I, you're and also when you say zooming in zooming out it makes me also think of uh fate with a fractal mm -hmm. i don't know if you ever played any any uh, yeah. fate but i guess the question is so what is the so what is the is there uh, mechanics at different levels and what, how does those mechanics work independently and then work together? Yeah. So um, the, the, the zoomed out portion, I'll talk about that. So anytime, so the city is divided into 47 boroughs and because 
it's very in-world. We use a lot of like the in-world colloquialism to describe what the gangs are like in the in the city in in gangs of Cahabro, Cahabro being the name of the city. Uh, they don't call themselves gangs; they call themselves guilds because they believe that they're struggling for legitimacy against this dominion of merchant princes who are ostensibly like criminals themselves, but they're well-landed, blooded criminals. So yeah. the guilds of Cahabro um, capture boroughs, and they call them their rookery. And as you capture a rookery, uh, you the people there, you either build fear or you build respect. And eventually they you you're rewarded um, with tribute, which is kind of an abstraction of coin, manpower, resources. And you can invest tribute into into making investments into your home base, which is called your haunt. So you can kind of like you can have bathhouses to recover quicker from your injuries. You can create um, what's called the nibblery, which is where you can have like minor thieves go out and do do heists for you. Essentially, it kind of takes away it, the, the the goal was to be to keep the players in the moment and let the let the running of the game kind of happen through the abstraction of the mechanics. So, the more territory you capture, the more tribute you earn, the more the more gangs you uh, you begin to attract. And because the city, is, you know, these gangs are struggling for legitimacy, they're the guilds. There's like these top five guilds, which kind of are kind of like a mirror to the five families in the other side of the city, the legitimate princes. So they've got this kind of like code of conduct uh, that they adhere to. And there, there are, it isn't like open gang warfare. They have to wait until solstices during the year. And that is when the, the, what they call the handbook, which governs how gang warfare is orchestrated, uh, very much like how kind of very, like like Dune, um, where it's very kind of in world. So the gang warfare can only occur during solstice season. That's when gang ter- that's when gangland territory switches around. So they've got this kind of like very archaic way of like managing things. So it's less it's less mafioso, and it's more like and I'm, I'm, I think this kind of inspiration came from AD and D. In fact, where it's like there's this image I remember. It says there's no honor among thieves, and I was like, what an interesting concept to create like what if a guild of thieves or a guild of gang members knaves like actually had a code of conduct and let that code of conduct all the gangs adhere to and if they didn't they got wiped out by the bigger gangs like they get they get consumed so there's this pressure there's this pressure uh to adhere to the gangland warfare rules so um that's how it kind of happens at the macro level and then the zoom in the micro level is all of your characters or your 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 names in this point, like all the names of the professions are super in world. Like as an example, um, in the city, there are these professional street fighters called strappers because they wrap their hands in straps of leather. And they're also coincidentally what historically are based off barber surgeons. So a strapper is like the name for a fist fighter. Um, if you are somebody who treats the injured, you're a cutsmith. Um, if you are a former, what we call the, the legate, the police, you're former legate, you're a turncloak. So all of the names of these professions are super in-world and all, and all of the language they use is super in-world as well. Um, but the, the thing, sorry, I'm, I know I'm going on, but I have one last thing I think is the coolest thing that really excites me about the game is that because it's gang warfare, right? It's not like people are going to run around the city with swords and crossbows and shields and plate armor. Um, 
looking back at the movie the warriors it was all about like anything you can get your hands on right so sticks and chains and shivs and common everyday items you may repurpose as a weapon so the the design conundrum was how do you make a billiards cue a compelling weapon and the the answer was that every weapon it basically operates like a magic item so you have different tricks and schemes you can use with your billiards cues with your chains with your with your um your blackjacks so we managed to make these weapons more attractive than trying to find a sword because using a sword is illegal in this setting you can't possess a sword but you certainly can you can certainly use a piece of uh, refashioned iron and do cool tricks with it. So that was kind of like how we made the micro interesting to where players actually want to use like improvised weapons because they can unlock cool tricks with them. So I guess with damage, like with hit points, I'm assuming it's still using hit points as a standard. No, so so Gangsga Habro is built off of Zweihander and Zweihander in essence, there's no hit points. It's just thresholds. And your threshold is basically an, ab an ablation of date of damage. Yeah. And when it ablates, you have a you have a tracker of health. You're either alive or you're dying. And all of the steps down, um, like lightly wounded, moderately wounded, seriously wounded, grievously wounded, are different steps upon it. So your makeshift armor, like let's say that you have a jack of plates or you have a heavy cloak that's been reinforced with bits of metal that's the kind of armor that they wear because they, they can't openly wear armor so you have you don't have hit points you have this damage threshold idea um and that kind of represents the withstanding damage but there's also because it is based up based off Zweihander, um there's also a lot of uh physical there's a lot of physical and mental affliction so stress fatigue anxiety fright um, and that's tracked through peril and peril is an abstraction of all the other stuff that's not getting shot, stabbed, caught on fire, falling up buildings. And that reduces your, your, your ability to use your skills. And that, and those two trackers are, they're not just for gangs, behavior, they are the foundation of this Y-Hinder game system. Well, I, to me, that makes sense because when you start playing the, the hit point arms race, yep, then it's like, you know, you know, these these improvised weapons are really like, okay, now you're gonna have to hit somebody with a chair. It does one d four. Now you're gonna yeah. have to hit him twenty seven times to hit That's to exactly take out right. a tenth level guy. And, and and this is a really a carryover from D and D BX. Like all weapons do one d six plus com plus a bonus. The, well, they, I think even the hit yeah. points are such that uh, it, it, you really can't be too. Uh, you can't get too cocky about things or you're going to find yourself dead yep. real quick. So it's like, that's right. That's yeah. Right. I may be fifth level, but I only have 15 hit points. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. And that, and that, that, that carryover from BX was like, I mean, that, 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 when they kind of, the way weapons worked in that, I thought was like a really good setup for Zweihander because the, it's not that daggers are less dangerous than Zweihander's or, or, or whatever other weapon, like a mace or a sword or a bow. It's that they have different qualities. So, if you get stabbed with a knife, you have a threat of bleeding out. You get hit with the sword, you have a threat of being knocked to the ground. So each weapon has its own set of qualities, and although they all do the same amount of damage, the qualities distinguish the weapons, just like with improvised weapons. Um, like as an example, if a, um, let's say for instance, a hot, a hot spur is one of the professions in Gangsica Habro. A hot spur is essentially an in-world colloquialism for a coachman. They like fast carriages, fast horses, fast life. 
and they can't stop spurring their horses. They're called the hot spur. They're one of their key weapons is a billiards cue. And one of the billiards cue abilities is called clean the table. And you literally break the weapon, you knock everybody away from you and hit everybody with the same amount of damage, but you've broken the cue. Everyone's pushed away from you so you can get some space to run away. Every weapon in Zweihander and Ging's Kehaber is treated the same way where each weapon, despite the fact they all do the same damage, they all do something a little bit different. Um, and that's how I thought would be an interesting way to treat damage and hit points because um, hit points just, uh, at least for the types of games that I run, just don't really track because to your point, like how many times I've hit this guy with the chair or I can just yeah. take a big giant sword and hit him once. So I wanted to remove that from the from the calculus, so to speak. And instead, it's like find weapons that suit your character's narrative and the cool tricks that they can do. Yeah, I think it, it seems like there's such a, especially with D&D, the potential is that the more that the later uh, editions is, is, is the you can look at a room, you say, okay, there's, there's 10 orcs. Um, and you can do mm -hmm. the, the math in your head. Can we make it? Can we not? Yeah. What's the risk? But really, there should be anytime you're dealing with a group of 20 people with pointy things, it should be always a little like, maybe there's a better way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it it and that and that's definitely i would say from a design perspective at least with modern D, &D like that's not really a consideration it's like numbers don't typically win out players do but in older versions of D, &D that was not the case and and i felt from a design perspective for the games i create now i carry that forward where literally a group of peasants can tear a well-tuned knight off of his horse and pound him to death because they vastly outnumber the knight. Now, the granted, they're fighting with pitchforks and torches, and the knight's in armor, so it may ablate some of the damage, but if they get him on the ground or her on the ground, like, it's game over, because they're going to win by sheer numbers. And I love that about early D&D, &D where volumes of enemies were meaningful, um, and that just changed as additions kind of continued on. Yeah, it did. and I And I can understand, I mean, you know, you're dealing with uh you know you know the the war game beginnings yeah and i think you know the i i think the um uh, the media the that's been producing the stuff that we consume has changed so people want are looking to be more heroic you know so yeah you know or conan read the conan stories doesn't always go great for conan yeah <laughs> I, I i love robert howard i mean i, I when i think about um writers who have influenced my own game design robert howard looms pretty large um glenn cook with black company yeah um i love i love uh Fopper and gray mouse or like those books were so instrumental in the way that i write and the way i tell stories but also the way that i write and design my games yeah so i think you know when you look at that then you know this kind of uh you know the, the this this humiliating or humbling things that occur to Conan, you know, yeah. I think nowadays you're not going to see that in the mangas and the whatever. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's high action, lots of things, punching out giants and whatever, yeah. which, which I'm not going to, it's, it's wherever people find fun. I'm, I'm more than happy, but, but yeah. I think that, you know, it's gone from being, you know, kind of a zero to hero to, uh, you know, characters being more of like uh superheroes and yeah uh, i i, I want to show you something because i think you and your and your viewers will find it interesting but one of the uh one of the most i would say more modern writings i've really fallen into i've fallen in love with over the years really starting in the 90s was berserk 
which if you haven't read or seen this, essentially imagine like the world of Conan, but thrust into a dark fantasy version of the 30 Years War. Um, it is fantastic and it has flawed characters. It represents many of the kind of throws you would see in Conan, like cursed temples and cursed people. And yeah. it's very, very low magic. And the characters are flawed and they go through a lot of travails. Like Berserk is to me kind of like my mod modern analog of Robert Howard, uh, because it is such a, a great, it's a great dark fantasy series. It's well written and illustrated. It's a manga. Um, and it's been out for like 20 years. Um, however, um, it's very well written uh, for what it is. Uh, I would say it's probably the most uh, American English forward manga written out of Japan. Um, but it, it it reflects a lot of what I really love about Robert Howard's work um, through Conan. And um, it's if you haven't, if you haven't ever read it, I definitely I have not. I'll have to check that out. You know, manga is typically a hard sell for some people, and I don't read a lot of manga, uh, but Berserk is the one that I read, and it's it's a fantastic, and I revisit it annually. Um, it's 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 great. It's really good dark fantasy stuff. Yeah, and I think it, in it, the manga varies. I, I remember when I was uh, I used to read more much more comics back in the back in the eighties, mm -hmm. and uh, like Lone Wolf and Cub, and and so forth, and those were yeah. all really enjoyable. So there's there's for those that don't realize, I mean, you can. I think what's interesting about manga is it's, it's just such a wide variety of anything from teen romance to yeah know, hard science or hard fantasy or hard uh, science fiction. So I always tell people like the the far end the the far left and the far right end of manga is tentacle porn and and in in lolly anime that and all that's trash. But if you've come you grab right. the middle. You will find like these stands like Lone Wolf and Cub is a great example. I love Lone Wolf and Cub. Um, and I, like I said, I'm very choosy about the manga I read, but that's definitely on my shelf as well. Uh, Berserk, Lone Wolf and Cub is great. Um, read some JoJo's just because it's super high action. I love the, it's so weird. Um, but I don't read a lot of manga anymore, save for those. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's nice when you find those kinds of things that can help also inform your 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 um, your games too. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't seem like it, it's hard to really find, I think, really good uh, like TV shows and movies that that fit that 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 niche. Yeah, in, in a lot of fantasy, a lot, like a lot of fantasy novels are are just that they're just fantasy. That's their genre. But there is there are fantasy novels that transcend genre. Like a, a good example would be like. I think about like Captain America and the Winter Soldier. That was the first Marvel movie that wasn't just comic books and capes. It was a spy thriller. A 70s spy thriller. Yes. And they and they <laughs> they cross genres. And and to me, that is the that's the hard part. Like I grew up reading reading Dragonlance. I grew up reading Forgotten Realms, read R.A. Salvatore, and 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 all of that. But but what I never found in that was well, one, the 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 political the, the political influence of the time for Robert Howard and Conan being reflected through the stories same thing for um the way that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote like it was an analog for world war so um i love it when you can kind of find that not just like the genre you love like i love high fantasy but i love high fantasy when it's mixed with like horror like to me that's where you where those where the uh where fantasy starts to shine um, and, and, they're, and they're, it's hard to find, but when you do, like, uh, 
it, it the, the, the authors are typically very cognizant of how you can kind of mix those genres together and it makes for a more interesting unbelievable story suspending disbelief so to speak. yeah from my understanding they, they weren't really science fiction fantasy really wasn't separated until like later like i don't know if it's yeah. like in the 70s or 80s that there was this kind of a mix and and it, they kind of a lot of this was thrown together and a lot of yeah. early fantasy stuff had had like science of some sort mm -hmm. involved uh, I read a lot of uh, amazing tales that my my dad had collected when he was younger. So my first comic books were his books he was reading as a teenager. Um, and then eventually I'd move on to like Heavy Metal Magazine. And then I would move on to, you know, standard American comic books, read a lot of Daredevil, X-Men. Um, but, but it started with amazing tales. And that's what kind of started my interest in reading the works of um, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, reading the works of uh, Robert Howard. And to your point, like they didn't really distinguish fantasy and sci-fi. It's all kind of blended together, uh, and that was cool. Like that was cool. Like I, I love that about uh, about those old those old writings and old comics. I was I I've never done this. I've never. Uh, but one thing I thought would be if you come up with something, maybe the apocalypse engine is too is too simple, or or it wouldn't work. But it would be fun to do a. Um, a, a have a game uh, system and you run adventures but they would be based off of those 40s and 50s pulp writings yeah. and it could just be the wild and weird you know uh -huh. robots have taken over and yeah you know whatever the, the crazy story is and then you then you just play that scenario um that's kind of one of my i don't know quite how to untangle and make that happen but it's kind of, one of the things i'd like to uh, to see occur one day is um, being able to play all these really weird stories where science isn't it's envisioned as as envisioned in the 40s and 50s yeah like uh what did the 2000s look like from the vision of people written in the 1930s like that's the like the um buck rogers and flash gordon like that was like i loved the the, the designs of those characters how the the far-flung future is our modern day yeah uh i, I have a, a buddy who he runs an annual game near christmas and he uses savage worlds and it's always some like weird cross genre stuff um and like one year it was like what if christmas was what what if what if santa was uh like the the president of the united states it's very silly beer and pretzel shit but most importantly um he would always kind of mix genres from like these old pulpy magazines and i was always very and that's what my first brush against savage worlds was through his kind of homebrew stuff we would do just literally like annually once a year we would get together and just drink and do just be silly and play play games that were inspired by some of the older magazines um but i bet it's, it's, it feels like a free flexible i've never played in savage worlds other than that yeah and in fact they 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 have flash gordon i have the the books mm -hmm. uh and i've read uh flipped through a little bit through the campaign and surprisingly it looks like it the campaign is is absolutely excellent Mm -hmm. um we're doing more than just going here and shooting that person going here and shooting that yeah. thing as there's, there's actually uh they, they they there's political intrigue and things happening so yeah that's that was the coolest thing about those books too i mean they were kind of ahead of their time um you know you had a lot of bad pulp fiction and pulp fantasy and then there was good pulp fantasy and the good pulp fantasy was the stuff that was politically relevant at the time and had like it was beyond just like this story like i i think about um one of my favorite robert howard stories is red nails 
Um, it's yeah. one of the first ones I ever read, and it really kind of I loved the the politicking between the two different tribes inside the labyrinth. I thought it was really cool, um, and and I that to me is like what makes good writing, good storytelling, good game design, um, and and it's something that has has been super influential over over everything that I do um, in my professional career in game design. In what way? Well, so uh, so I I don't I write so I've been writing RPGs for about I don't know like maybe nine years at that and kind of my first big big RPG was Y Hunter um, and it it, it it I didn't expect it to become so big it was intended to be like a little home system we kind of developed off of the Warhammer Second Edition roleplay system where we stripped out the world and kind of stripped it down to its most essential parts and it kind of became this like explosive game so uh, why why did you strip it down i don't like the world of warhammer uh but but like i mentioned before i've been running the same campaign world of my own home campaign for years prior to warhammer I've been running for dnd for years so you're you're uh, playing this okay so yeah. you're playing this dnd campaign you're like man we love this campaign but yeah i'm just not feeling it for for the for the actual for the rules for dungeons and dragons yeah and then you're playing warhammer you're like you know what i really like these mechanics but i really just find this this world not to my taste and you said you know what i need to mix peanut butter and chocolate yes yes it was uh but what had happened with our DD game is as we kind of grew older our appetite for high fantasy began to diminish because as we matured and the world got more less black and white and more shades of gray we wanted a system that could emulate that style of gameplay so for us rpgs are catharsis right we're like we can work the things we can't control in the real world we can play some of those things out in imaginary ways uh, as elves and dwarves uh in and in the D D mechanics over time just wasn't quite doing it so um on a lark i picked up warhammer fantasy role play second edition on recommendation of um a gentleman named phil kilgore who owns tabletop game and hobby in kansas city and it sat on my shelf probably for half a year. And then I pulled that one out and I was like, oh my gosh, like the mechanics here are really cool. Like, they're, so is, they're really is this cool. pre Jay Little with the, uh, with this, the yeah, this... so Jay Little was third edition Warhammer, but at this okay. point, second edition was out of print. Um, so uh, I was like, hey, um, let's just create this little game around our table um, just for us. And, and we started kind of working on like 2012, uh, 2013. And then eventually, like three years later, um, I shared it on a Warhammer fantasy roleplay forum called Strike to Stun. It's like, hey, here's what we've been doing with the Warhammer system. Um, and we've been adapting this to my my long running campaign at this point. And the the community kind of glommed onto it because at this point, third edition was about to be announced. And as we I think we know now in retrospect, third edition was not very well received. So well, I don't really know that much history. I just, am, ah, uh, so yeah. I'm not really a Warhammer. I, I really don't have much opinion on it one way or the other. I mean, I just, yeah. I'm aware of Jay Little's uh, thing. I know that the, and I've played his fantasy flight games and I have mixed yeah. feelings about that, but this is probably where he first started playing with the funny dice and everybody lost their yep. minds. Yeah. This is the uh, cast the runes and interpret them, which I I think was brilliant i thought it was brilliant i loved how he subverted the idea he turned our math rocks into tools to read 
omens. Um, and, and I thought that I, I think, you know, I've played a lot of J little games as well. And I have some mixed feelings, but I think that the, the advent of these strange dice, how they kind of counter cancel one another out was a really interesting development, but it wasn't well received. And at the, at the time I was, I was at this point, the community for Warhammer is like, you should release this as a book. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll take it to Kickstarter and um, I'll, I'll sell like a hundred bucks. So this is like 2016, I think. So at this point, I mean, Kickstarter's been around, but this is not. This is super early days. Yeah. So I put it on Kickstarter and I'd been working with an artist who I met through the Warhammer community, a gentleman from Serbia named Dan Mandich, who, uh, who's become, I mean, he's my partner in everything on Zweihander now. Um, we're very good friends. So I was like, I'll sell, I'll raise a thousand dollars. I'll make a hundred bucks. I'll have enough money to make books for all of us around the table. Um, and it raises like $78,000 or something like that on Kickstarter. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I put it on Crowdox and it raised 138,000. So What's in Crowdox? Well, <laughs> it was the predecessor to Backer Kit, or I should say it was the um, competitor to Backer Kit until Backer Kit bought it. So it was a post-Kickstarter funding platform that works just like Backerkit. Um, so between Crowdox and Kickstarter, I had a little over $312,000 sitting in a bank account. And this is 2016. And I'm like, oh my God, like, I guess I'm a games publisher now. So- <laughs> Well, that changes the whole formula. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. the, the, the scale has now changed, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I imagine you're, you're, I don't know if you're planning on doing like print on demand. I mean, then you're going to offset printing. I mean, you weren't planning on doing offset printing to begin with, were you? No, my, my, like I mentioned, my intention was like, I'll print some books on lulu.com. Yeah. I'll do a hundred and that'll be awesome. And then now I find myself with a tremendous amount of money um, and fans who are just clamoring for the book. They didn't care about the quality of the book, but I knew like at that point I was like, well, I can't just do print on demand because one, um, I want to make the most beautiful book I possibly can. Uh, so print on demand wasn't going to be that. And then two, um, I can never shelf this in retail at print on demand. Um, it's just not the way that retailers work right. at the time. So I actually, well, and the other thing is you'll never have another opportunity, right? That's right. You, That's right. You could, you could have done this. You could have like taken the money, said, mm -hmm. it's cool. It's been fun. Give a book. Um, and it'd been a nice book. Um, but then everybody would have been, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. And then yeah. it's never happening. Or you could say, I'm going to make this a, a very great publication. And maybe this yeah. will be a part of something. Um, and also it gives you a chance to, to make something exactly the way you want. There's no, now there's yeah. no, there's no limitations to, well, I guess I only can afford three pieces of art. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Russ is well, going to be stock art. <laughs> that's right. So we, I was talking to my my friend Diane, and and he is, by the way, he is an amazing illustrator. He does all black and white, all pencil. He doesn't do any sort of electronic illustration. So I was talking with him, and he's like, "Well, why don't you try to find like an offset printer in Kansas City?" And I'm like, "What's <laughs> offset printing?" And what ends up happening, I end up contacting um, Larry Elmore's book printer who coincidentally lives in Kansas city. And he had just, he had just printed, I think it was his like 30 year anniversary illustration book. I can't recall exactly. 
And that led to a 667-page book called Zweihander Core Rulebook. And uh, it and because Dan and I were attached at the hip, like he put, I mean, it was a piece of art almost in every single page. Yeah. And it's consistent because it's all his artwork. So suddenly it's 2018. We've got these books out there. I run out, I printed like, I don't know, I printed like 10,000 books, sold them out like in the first year. Like it was for in 2018, like now, like you see multi-million dollar kickstarters all the time. But like at the time, I'm like, I'm fulfilling orders on my basement. Um, and I'm like, I can't do, I can't keep up on this. I need to find a way to solve this problem. And, and then it's nominated for an any. So my, my co-designer and I, Adam Rose, we drive to Gen Con for the first time in my entire lives in 2018. Never been to Gen Con before in my entire life. It went, Zweiner wins best game product of the year. And it's like, well, I guess I'm doing this for real now. Um, and, and from there, uh, the, the, it just, it just blew up. Um, suddenly I'm in my third print run. I've sold at this point, like 42,000 physical books and drive through RPG. It's like platinum rated within like less than like six months. So it's, it's growing at a rate that I can't keep up. So I'm like, I need to find a real public. Well, well, I'll say too, when you say platinum rating on drive, that's a, that's pretty amazing because there are some very large publishers who, yeah. who have multi who have up like million dollar kickstarters and they are not platinum on a lot of, on a lot of their books yeah so i have i have a secret weapon and that secret weapon was 17 years of digital advertising experience so um i was building an email list very early on um i was one of the first adopters on drive through rpg to use their um publisher point system um i was creating re-engagement scenarios through mailchimp uh, to engage with people, I was use I was doing some of the first sponsored play on YouTube, um, so I was kind of pulling out my arsenal of things that I would recommend to a client. Because I, I at this point I had spent I mean at the time in 2018 I had already spent 15 years in advertising. I was um a, I was a managing director uh, at the agency here in Kansas City. Like I had like I mentioned before, one of my clients was United Rentals. Freddie Mac was one of my clients, Spire Energies. So I was managing multi-million dollar accounts, but I had a background in digital advertising. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I take my day job discipline and apply it to this RPG I've created, it can grow really, really quick because at, at the time, I think at the time, my my feeling is that um, publishers were still, I mean, publishers still shoestring, shoestring budgets for marketing. Um, and it's very expensive. Marketing is very expensive and, and expensive to find someone who knows how to do it right now. That's changed, I think, the last like four or five years. I feel that's a pretty strong discipline publishers are building up now. But at the time, um, I used those things I knew to help grow Zweihander really quick. And that eventually landed me at a publisher in Kansas City called Anders McNeil Publishing, where I was the executive creative director of games for four years. And Zweihander... Uh, was turned into Flames of Freedom, which was Richard Iorio's Colonial Gothic game. Um, we worked with Ryan Vernier, who was the lead world creator at Riot Games. Uh, he created Blackbirds. Uh, we worked with Adam Ellis, uh, who was a cartoonist uh, on Fever Nights, and it turned into all these like spinoff games based off of Zweihander. And since then, like this has been my, my job, um, is to be a full-time publisher 
working with the publishing house um, to publish Zwei Hander and continue to grow it. Yeah, and I think going back to, I mentioned doing the uh, photography uh, a while back. And I, I, I did stuff on the side. And I, did, I did fine. But one thing I learned early on, like to be a successful photographer or being successful anything in a business, it's really much less about being really good at that thing but it's all the other things that are important and especially yeah. marketing. Yeah. So if you're good at marketing and yeah. you're a mediocre photographer, you will do very well. But if you're yes. a great photographer <laughs> and a mediocre marketing, you'll, you'll get by, but it's not going to be great. Yeah. It's a, uh, I was, I, I've been mentored probably most of my professional career and have been also been a mentor myself, a mentee and a mentor. And uh, one of my, one of my, I think it was my second mentor I've been, uh, under for about five years, he said um, pretty much the same thing. He said, you know, you, it's not about, it's, sometimes it's not about the quality of the product. Although at the time I'm thinking like, qual I didn't call it product, I call it a game, right? It's like this basement game we made um, had was filled with 450 illustrations across 600 pages. It was offset print. It was heavy. It was dense and it was everywhere. So I was like, if I can, if I can use people's excitement for that and use it to kind of propel sales to reach because I was concerned about outreach to D and D fans. Yeah. I can reach D and D fans and I can reach Warhammer fans and I've got a, I've got an audience and, and that happened, you know, it, it, I used those skills, the, those disciplines I learned elsewhere. Um, and, 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 and at the end of the day, um, I think you're right. Like you can be a fantastic game designer or you can be a mediocre, mediocre game designer, but the person who is able to best talk about their work, and get people energized about it and to put it into people's hands. Cause I gave away a crap ton of PDFs for free. I'd sent, I probably sent out more than 5,000 plus books for zero cost to reviewers, to people who ask for books, uh, to schools, to libraries, to reviewers. Um, because I felt that what was important to me was to take this game that my friends and I had basically built together and to put it under people other people's hands to hopefully inspire them to go create their own things. Well, uh, I think even as PDFs, and I for Kickstarter, I try and keep my PDFs pretty low. Mm -hmm. But I, I view that as as a sort of marketing. Like it is, yeah. You know, for 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 a I charge three, but I mean, even if it's a buck or two or whatever, it's it's low enough. I want almost anybody to say to not be able to to not say I don't want people to say no. Like I want to yeah. be low enough where people won't think about it. And I think if you look at your PDFs as, as, as not large, you're at a different point where your PDFs could be, I'm not sure, but like $18, $20, $25. But, you know, for what mine, it's like, it, I think if I keep it low enough, it, it's, it's reasonable for that to be a form of marketing, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I think PDFs are, they're, they're great for outreach and, I, th I think PDFs serve several purposes. Um, the, the most important is that somebody who either isn't in a situation where they can spend cash on a book or they're not near a game store um, or, or, or they want to try it before they buy it, um, the, the buried entry, like get a free, you reach out to the publisher and get a free PDF. Like I've always been a big proponent. And even though I sell my PDFs for $19, if somebody asks me for a PDF, I'll give it to them for free. I don't care. They don't have to give me a reason. They just have to reach out to me by email and I'll do it. Because the way I see it is that um, it's an opportunity uh, for someone to try a game and have, and may maybe have a positive experience, maybe have a bad experience. I mean, either way, they have an experience 
But at the end of the day, like I feel that that is, it's not only good for sales, but it's also good for gamers. Um, well, I think they're engaged. So like, let's say you, for instance, just gave it for free to every single person. Mm -hmm. People may download it, but they're not going to necessarily be engaged. They're just going to be, hey, it's another PDF. But if somebody has got enough gumption to ask you, mm -hmm. that's, a, they, they, that's a lot of barriers that they, that most people won't go through. Yeah. There's a, there was an article on DriveThruRPG that was written by, I forget the gentleman's name. He was the VP of marketing at DriveThruRPG before they were acquired by Roll20. And he wrote this article on like, what's the right price point uh, for a PDF on DriveThruRPG? And unsurprisingly, the one that was the worst price point because it had the least amount of downloads was pay what you want. And, and this reminded me of one of the conversations I had with one of my mentors. And he said, you know, if you... If you think that your labor is worth zero dollars, then you can't ask for a dollar. They're not going to give you a dollar. You right. think your labor is worth zero dollars. So there's a there's a fine line, I feel, from a merchandising perspective, like to get into the business side. Like there's a there's a if if you undervalue your things, then people will never pay you more than what you're undervaluing yourself for. If you overprice, you price a lot of people out. So it's a delicate balance. And I feel the best way to strike that balance is not to give away the PDF for free unless they ask and to price the PDF appropriately because it is still, a, there's still a form of labor uh, that comes out of having to produce a PDF. I pay a layout artist to hyperlink it, to right. make it ADA compliant, you know, all that, all the way, you know, from A to Z. Um, but, you know, I am, I still stand by this, even though I have um, what I think may be um, some different opinions on, say, free PDF distribution uh, than other people. I do believe that, you know, I'm a big proponent of send me an email. I will send you a PDF. No questions asked. I don't care. Just send me an email. I'll do it. Because well, I think once the, again, it's the it's, way, it's, I don't know, know what people's situation is. Well, the thing too, is if, if people want to just view it before they buy it, the, the mm -hmm. solution is simple with drive through is you do the preview and I'll pretty much set up a preview for the entire yeah. PDF. Mm -hmm. So yeah. they want to flip through it. They can flip through it. I don't have any problems. Somebody wants to go through the hassle of capturing it one by one and putting <laughs> yeah. it in there. More yeah. power to them. You know, I'm not going right. to, you know, that's God right. bless you. It's like, it's fine, but, but it's there. So, I mean, there are, and, that, and that's what irritates me. Even people who, who do stuff for a low amount of money, uh, they don't put the, they don't put the previews up and it's yeah. like, like pay what you want. I, I don't mind doing pay what I want, paying people but I want to see what it looks like before I do it. I feel bad about yeah. not paying anything just to get it and then have to go back and then pay them. It's like, just give me the full preview. If it's, if it's yeah, what you want, right. just do the full preview of the entire thing. Uh, make it well, easy. I think there, you know, that's actually interesting point to discuss, which is like what it means to be a creator and what it means to be a successful creator. If success is defined by making money, but that money is paying your full-time job or paying for the money you put into it or just enough to run on. Um, the, the measure of success is typically measured through sales. But the problem with that is that there is, I still feel um, there are many, many different, I mean, I feel there's a, a lack of institutional knowledge that's being passed down from successful creators on drive through RPG to new creators. So no wonder they gravitate toward itch.io because it's, Low effort, pretty low yield, um, but drive-through RPG um, up until the last four months has been a pretty 
difficult site to navigate. Like if you want to spend publisher points or set up banners or set up discounts, like that back end is really complex and complicated. And I feel that um, as, as somebody who has mentored many people through this, like there is like this massive amount of institutional knowledge that isn't being passed down from drive RPG down to its publishers. I don't think they do a great job of that right now. Um, I hope Roll20's acquisition of that changes that. But um, I I have always prided myself on sharing my path to success with people because it's not it's great at some moments or lightning in a bottle. But the the the, the strategy that I used uh, is is replicable um, by anyone, um, providing you know what the steps are along the way to to make it. And part of that, the big part of that, is knowing how to use drive through effectively because drive through can be a pretty significant revenue generator for you if you know how to use the banner ads and use the uh, p publisher points for the product of the day, the, the day deal today. So what I will say is I've been, so I've started, uh, I, I did five Kickstarters this year. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on that, by the way. That's oh, fantastic. thank you. And, uh, but what I realized is I generated more revenue from kicks or from drive through than what I imagined I would. Yeah. And, and I have not really done anything. And then there's uh there was the creator or is it the uh it was the, the um was it the creative summit, Goodman Games yeah. and and um and backer kit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they had are, are people from uh Kickstarter, not Kickstarter from um from drive through explaining. And mm -hmm. I know and that's one of the things I need to go through because you yeah. talk about the banners and spending the points and Various things like that is probably if if a person publishes regularly, uh, I think that that has a potential to be a, a good uh, revenue stream if done yeah. wisely. Yeah, many many people don't even know that you can use Drive Through RPGs platform to email your audience. And they have no idea you can do that, but you do can. You it, co it costs two publisher points to send an email out, and it, and an email is by far the most effective driver of RPG, digital RPG sales beyond Kickstarter, beyond paid ads, beyond itch, beyond giving it away on online. It's email, whether it's through drive through RPG or your own email list you, you may have through Shopify. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, is email lists. Um, you said through Shopify. Mm -hmm. Shopify has, <laughs> a, has, a, has a, has a, has an ESP built into it now where you can, Remarket to your uh, your audience. It's great. It's not a uh, it, it it it's missing some pieces. It's not. Uh, I would say it's not as useful as say Mailchimp or SendGrid. But Shopify now has a built in way for you to email your customers because oh, they have mind blown Google Analytics built in now. They have like an ESP. And they're trying to become the all in one uh, one stop shop. No pun right. intended for all commerce. Like as a true CMS, like uh, and it's uh, it's I I recently started using Shopify email and I was just my mind was blown away. I'm like, oh my god! First, I can't believe I can do this, but also, where are all the other tools that I expect to find? So I still use SendGrid or SendGrid and Mailchimp a lot uh, for some, some of my own email operations. However, uh, Shopify has it there now, so you can <laughs> remarket to your backers. Just keep in mind that um, your email list on DriveThruRPG. You cannot download that. That data belongs to Drive Through RPG. You cannot export out your email users at least anymore. You used to be able to back in 2018, 
But I think uh, you can also do. I think they're funny about the links too. They are. You can't. You can't post links to sites outside of Drive Through RPGs ecosystem. I um, think unless you're doing a Kickstarter, you promise that you'll be a good person, yeah. and it's directly to your Kickstarter, and they're going to review it before they actually. I think yeah. before they send it. it. It's. I wouldn't say it's a pernicious practice uh, that Drive Through won't share their your customer data with you, but I will say that. You're the one who generated those customers. Those customers technically belong to you or in part to you. So it's it's bizarre to me that you can't download that customer data. However, um, the the solve there is that um, you embed your your website or your links into the PDF and you find other ways to, for outreach and you and you incentivize email signups with guess what? Free PDFs. Um that that alone, like I used Google Forms for many years to get to build my own email list, and it was super effective because I, I the challenge was I have all these customers on Drive Through RPG, I have all these customers sitting in Kickstarter and in Crowdox and now Backerkit, um, and I need to like merge them all together. The problem is is that I know my down my people on Drive Through RPG is a larger audience, so how do I get them to join my email list that I can control? Um, and the way that I did that is by offering free PDFs uh, for signing up at on Google Forms. And that's how I built an effective email list outside of the drive-thru ecosystem. So now I don't have to rely on drive-thru RPG to re-engage um, gamers. Yeah, so one of the things I've not done is I've not really done much as far as the, the, the um, an email list or mm -hmm. I think I should be doing a newsletter. Um, yeah. And yeah, that that's just I think this thing is is it's like a lot of things. There's things we're good at, things we're not so good at, things we like and things we don't like. Yeah. And that is definitely, I think, a very uh strong one. Because one thing I didn't realize till uh Zach Owens uh talked to me to do in the backer kit launch. Mm -hmm. It's like they're charging yeah. me a hundred bucks just to email everybody. <laughs> and he yeah. says that they've got a they have a better, they have a better um like uh is it uh, open rate. Um, then your a standard one will be, and yeah. we did it, and it it increased the followers. They haven't gone live yet, uh, by um, it, it increased by fifty percent. So it wasn't. It's it, significant. Yeah, your 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 the the cool thing I like the thing that I think is the big takeaway is that people on Kickstarter and people in Backerkit are serial backers, and more importantly. They want to see you succeed. So when you're releasing a new product, they're like, heck yeah, Jeff's got a new thing. I'm going to back this, of course, right? And so when they receive that email from Backerkit, there's high open rates because they know it's coming to them. It's targeted to them. It's not like an email blast. It's like, right. hey, Jeff's got a new uh, Backerkit, uh, a new Kickstarter coming out. You better sign up. And if you're incentivizing that sign up, even better. But most importantly, the Backerkit email uh, is is has high engagement rates and it's high opens so the the, the measurement of success to look at it from the advertising perspective is what's called ctor so it's like open to click rate which are open to click ratio so it's you have high opens but if your clicks are bad that means your email is bad that means the body of the email is bad but if you have have high click-through rates uh, that means you did a really good job and and typically like to zach's point he's absolutely right um backer kit is hyper effective in um getting your your readers to like re-engage um in to to the point where backer kit can literally become 
the, your CMS to manage all your customer information. And that's what they want. They want you to do that because it's a, a service they can offer. Yeah, and it goes to show too, you know, as a person tries to become, get into publishing, I mean, it's, it's you know, whether you're doing a small company or a larger company, I mean, that marketing, it, it takes work. Um, yeah. And it, yeah. It's, it's not easy. I mean, for some people, it's interesting and fun. And, and uh, but for other people, it's like, you know, you, 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 if you're going to be doing it, you, you can't make it look like it's drudgery and that you're putting yeah. out, I mean, you need to put out something that is vibrant and exciting that people want to, to see. <laughs> I, I always tell people that, and this is not to demean the creative process as a creator, um, but the, the, the act of making a, a successful game is 50% writing and 200% marketing. And the reality is, is that a lot of people don't have the temperament for that 200%. So instead they take that other 50% and they create another thing and then another thing and another thing. And while you can have slow organic growth, um, not everyone has the, the, either the wherewithal, um, or the appetite or the knowledge, um, to ef effectively market. So what you end up with is, and this is just people learning how to do it. Like you end up with a lot of junk mail. Um, from a lot of people you back before that's coming from different places and it's not really driving you anywhere. Right. Um, and once again, this is just, you know, there, there's no secret sauce here. It is, it is live. This is like advertise digital advertising, um, tactics and behaviors at work, uh, at the B2B and the B2C level. And, and, and really, um, I'm, I'm not some marketing whiz, but, um, that, the, those disciplines, um, are, are, are just as apt for selling for selling motor oil and Walmart is just as applicable to selling anyone who's watching the stream um, a, a game. Um, it's a lot, it's different, different tactics, uh, different types of language, different types of tone and voice and different types of imagery. But essentially at the end of the day, um, all houses are built the same from the foundation up. And it's the same for advertising. Um, every can, everything starts with the campaign and it's very, very teachable and replicable, replicable. There's a number of people I've seen, um, and at least one that was very vocal, where they lament the lack of the success and almost the, the feeling is kind of repugnant to market their stuff. They just mm -hmm. think that I'm making something, I feel it's great, I think it's better than everything else out there. Merit alone should be, you know, what drives my success. Yeah. And then they feel frustrated that it doesn't, but boy, that is, it's not reality. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I get it. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't bemoan people who think that, I mean, there are fantastic writers who probably some people have never heard of that I work with who are terrible at marketing, but are way better writers than I am way better game designers, um, even better marketers for that matter, but they just don't market themselves. It, I think that my, my opinion on this, like looking backwards, because I mean, granted, my my experience of the RPG industry is less than a decade old. However, um, having experience that I've experienced so far, um, the, the the big lessons have been the way you used to do it, the the good old days in the '90s, the '80s. You went to conventions. Oh yeah, you, right. that's, conventions were were. The <laughs> you printed out all your books. Yeah, you, you put them in the station wagon. Yep. You you drove to Gen Con. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's in, in hopefully it wasn't a break even experience. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it was like, 
you come home with $3,000 in your pocket after cost. Um, so now with Kickstarter and email platforms and social media in video, like all the bar in, in, in the ability to print on demand, all the barriers to entry that were there in the eighties and nineties are now gone. So yes. in anyone, anyone can publish anything they want. And there's a lot of great stuff out there. Someone never, no one, nobody's ever heard of because the person who created it isn't good at marketing themselves. And it's unfortunate, but, but it is, but it is reality that that's just the way that things work. Um, how do you find out about good products on Amazon? You, the ones that are rated the best, the ones that have the most reviews get promoted to the top. Um, you can have the best ShamWow uh, to go back to like the early 2000s. Like your ShamWow can be amazing yeah. or it could be a, a really bad product. But if it's over-marketed on QVC and it's in mailers and you're in, in, your, in your home and you're getting served those ads now on streaming platforms, like of course you're going to think about ShamWow when you want to buy something to wash your car with. Um, very well-known a marketing story how it was just like this terrible product with like this goofy looking guy who like that giant smile he had and shamwell became like almost inseparable from the idea of getting a rag to clean your car as kleenex is for tissues yeah uh and and it all boiled down to advertising you know it's a it's a it's not a good product but it was all about the advertising and it's just it's just then if, if you if you and i think this goes back once again like how we define success if this like I, when I started a success for me was making a game, my friends around my table can play and we could be like, holy crap, we did this together. And then as we, then next measure of success was we could print a hundred books. And then it was, I want to do my next book and reach 40,000 people. So the measure of success kind of changed. Um, but for a lot of creators, um, and this is, it's, I think it's just, I think it's admirable to simply write and publish something and that's enough that's enough um you you i think the creative process and this is kind of the the, the like moving away from the right brain like marketing shit like the stuff that excites me is to be able to create and share it with people and whether it sells one copy or a thousand copies or whatever like i just want to create things and i want to put them out there and hopefully people like them if they don't they don't they do they do but i think there are creators out there who are just brilliant brilliant designers uh, who will continue just creating more and more and more content, but will never reach a broader audience because they don't understand how to do that outreach. And it's and it's but, unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Well, I've seen people complain and leave drive through to go to itch upset because of the amount of money or the percentage that drive through charges. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, it, and I think the problem is, and I, I get it, but my goodness, there is no way they're going to get anywhere close to the sales on itch no. that they will. Like they, they <laughs> think that drive-throughs only service they're providing is a platform to, to take money. Yeah. Without realizing the degree of marketing that it, it putting things in front of people's eyes that it does. And if you can yeah. keep releasing co new content, um, and also the, what I haven't done yet is, you know, banners and various things. I mean, mm -hmm. that's where the, that's where the juice is. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, and, and people don't realize that, you know, you, it, if you're not going to be great at marketing, you, you better stick to a, a, a platform that at least does some of that for you. Yeah. I mean, you, to that point, um, there's a, there's a particular meme I'm thinking of where it's, it's an animated gif of like, 
a Tony dollar bill on a round table and people are passing it back and forth to one another. That to me is what itch.io is. It's a number of indie creators who are basically creating because they have, they don't, they can't use drive through RPG because they may live in a, like a country like Brazil or somewhere else where like it's prohibited. Um, or they live in an Asian, like an East Asian country where they can't use drive through RPG. So they go use itch and itch is like that, that answer for, for people who potentially have been countries that prohibit the use of, transactions in American dollars. So the problem with itch is that it's, although it is creator friendly, it's not built for RPGs. No. So there is this, it, it, it literally is the way that itch promotes itself as people promote one another, um, which is great for the indie design community. I think it's, 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 it's very admirable to be able to build something on, on itch and make it successful drive through RPG while they have, they take their percentage cut. The reality is, is that, um, the largest digital market for RPGs is drive through RPG. Yeah. Um, they're in, in, in now that they're part of the Roll20 family, like they, Roll20 has the largest amount of people playing RPGs online on their VTT. So um, you, I think as a, as a creator, if you're, if you're thinking about like, what are the things I could do today? That's low hanging fruit. That's going to help make me money or put my games in front of people is that you can't just choose one platform. You got to be on all of them. Um, you got to be where the you have to be on. You have to be everywhere that gamers are at, and and the and the 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 the, the low effort, high yield stuff is like Mitch itch and drive through RPG, because they're they're zero cost. Right. Put it on your website too if you get a website, you know. But um, the reality is, is that your largest markets are are on drive through RPG for digital, and that your products, if you use the tools right, and and it's not difficult. It's just it's just very archaic. Uh, it's very arcane to understand how to use them because the 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 FAQs are not very helpful, but um, it can be very very good. Uh, yeah. It's not it's not to detriment to drive through RPG. I mean, well, uh, they built something really cool, but there but there is a and I think that they're working toward like kind of helping people better understand how to use the platform, but it's just not very intuitive. Well, and, even like to to use them for print on demand, it, it, yeah. it I will not I will not use them, as um, I I print through Lulu, I print through Mixum. Yeah, I don't need a third one that is even more convoluted that provides me less. I just stay away yeah. from print. It's, I mean, to be fair, you know, it's not drive throughs fault. It's Lightning Source's fault because Lightning Source um, just is not a very good service or a print on demand. And drive through RPG is the their pricing, the way they accept files, like all the technical stuff around like PDF four and five X, like it's all due to lightning sources restrictions. So my, my hope is that um, with this big merger with roll 20 last year, uh, it was last year or 2022. I can't remember, but regardless, I'm hoping that kind of leads to some really cool publisher tools because what I, what I think is really cool about the roll 20 and drive through RPG opportunity is that uh, PDFs as being auto magically integrated into the roll 20 platform, which is a part of their roadmap. Um, I was shown that back at Gamma in 2021, um, and it was really cool because at the time, Roll20 was thinking we're going to do a PDF store, and then they went off and acquired DriveThruRPG. But now they've been talking about how PDFs and DriveThruRPG will have auto magically integrate into Roll20, and that's super cool because that's a whole other different audience. That's now the younger D and D audience who may not be buying PDFs but are actively playing D and D online or and Roll20, but probably never heard of another game besides D and D. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of opportunities with hyperlinks and being able to, if you can figure out how to D 
deal with assets and things. Um, yeah, yeah. That would be really nice. Like, I don't know. I, I, I know I'm, I'm familiar with Foundry. I played a little bit of D20, but I mean, if they just had standard assets, um, it'd be very easy where you can hyperlink, click a skeleton in the module yeah. that you created and it would automatically just, you know, generate a, you know, the, the, the graphic and the stat block for the online. Yeah. Well, I, I, speaking of which, I just saw that, um, I think it was Foundry VTT announced that they have a partnership with D&D &D, uh, because D&D has traditionally worked with Roll20. They're obviously developing their own kind of high-end VTT right. platform. And now they've also struck a deal with Fantasy, with, sorry, uh, with Foundry VTT, which goes back to my original point, which is you got to be everywhere. You can't just be one place. Yeah. You can't build a walled garden and expect everyone to come. And no. And <laughs> And I think the thing too is like you know with with YouTube and a lot of other things, there's a lot of opportunities, yeah. um, especially with even with Facebook, like doing you know like somebody was talking about doing video. I can't remember. I just said, well, I think they're thinking about doing a YouTube channel, but kind of t discussing about the form, the link. They said, well, just start, just do those shorts, just do it, yeah, just a two minute short or whatever that is. You're limited by time, and there's a lot of people that can. There's a lot of opportunities that you can. Get your face, get your product, uh, get your ideas out there that don't cost anything. Yeah, I think I think I watch, I watch so many YouTubers who talk about D and D, like I, I uh, Dungeon DM, uh, whom I love. There's a lot, a lot of shows on YouTube that I watch more often and listen to their recommendations before I listen to people's recommendations on social media. I mean, I get most of my RPG recommendations not from my friends, but from youtubers who talk about D, D and other rpgs uh and and it's a great it's a great platform uh if you know how to use it right and be earnest and honest um be your most authentic self as they say on youtube but uh it's a cool platform and it's it's also great for outreach too um at the time that when Zweiter was first published i mean i wasn't even thinking about youtube and that's something i kind of looking backwards the thing i'd love to changed in the very very early days um but like we spoke about before we started talking like i didn't know anything about cameras or microphones or anything at the time <laughs> so well, it's also one more thing right if yeah. you're you're one person i'm it, you know there, there's so many hours of the day so many things you can think about you you've got to you know like myself it's like there's got to be point where you know i'm working full-time job i'm married yeah. i got other activities mm -hmm. i've got kids i've got i mean there, there's a point where to do everything is it you can't it's just it's it, it, right. it unless you got a staff of people but large enough to have a staff mm -hmm. you know or hire freelancers to do it uh, it's yeah. it's very hard i in the early days had no children and i was not married so that was <laughs> some benefit <laughs> um now i have children and wife but yeah. um in fact uh just last year um I sold Zweihander to World of Game Design, and they are now technically my publisher. So with World of Game Design, we have staff, we have artists, we have writers, we have layout artists. So they're able to take Zweihander in a direction that even my publisher, Andrew McNeil couldn't do when I was at Andrew McNeil as the creative director, because they were they were a very traditional publishing company. They weren't an RPG company. They didn't understand what to do right. Yeah. But with World of Game Design acquiring Zweihander, um, it's been a, a game changer. In fact, right now we're we're running a Kickstarter for our next edition of the game called Reforged, um, which is like taking this 
retro like we've spent seven years and we've played this game seven years between ourselves and our community and our fans and we've heard all this feedback and we've learned all these things like writing i look back and i'm like oh my god i can't believe i wrote that and there's stuff i'm like i wrote that we made that really cool rule but it's like buried in the rules and like yeah this book's 677 pages long so how do we make it more useful why don't we get more art like all these kind of big things and kind of led to this um idea behind reforged because we didn't want to re-edition we don't want people's older books to be useless so we're like let's reforge the book so we we just did the pre-launch i think it's at like 1300 followers which was kind of surprising to me um particularly revisiting stuff from like seven years ago uh but it's been interesting and of course world of game design is the publisher on it so it's been um i'm kind of having this sense of deja vu uh but now i kind of know what to expect so um i don't know i'm excited about it but most importantly uh there's a team of amazing people that can help support it uh through the world of game design world of game design publishing um which is you know, for me, having a wife and kids, and I technically have a full time job. I work in, I actually work in preschool board games, um, as a as a I'm a I'm a, a director in preschool board games. So I develop preschool board games as well. Really? Tell, yeah. I always tell my I always tell my my wife I'm like, during the day I make games for two to six year olds, uh, <laughs> and and these are games like Eric, World of Eric Carl, um, Very Hungry Caterpillar, Pete the Cat. Um, I spy. So I make these games during the day for preschoolers. And when night goes down, when night falls, I go to the basement and I write really dark RPG content. Um, and uh, so with all of those responsibilities, to your point, like it's hard to do it all when you have other, when you have a full-time job, you know, a wife, friends, family, kids. Um, and I've been really blessed to have been accept accepted into the world of game design family because they're going to take all, I remember all the stress and all the gray hairs that you can't really see, but I have yeah. a lot of gray hair. But it came from that process of like doing it all on my own up front with some a lot of support from my friends, to be fair. Um, but having a publisher like is kind of a a, a a publisher who understands the RPG industry is a game changer. So I'm 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 pretty stoked for the next version of Zweihander. Yeah, it's it's it sounds pretty exciting. I know I've talked to Zach a little bit about some plans and ways yeah. of utilizing it in community and all that. So it sounds like uh, they're really wanting to grow this in in many ways. So yeah, I I I one of the so there's there's a particular uh, publishing group, Stockholm Cartel, and Johan through and and those people through Merkborg, which I think they have done amazing things. Um, Merck Borg is probably one of my favorite uh, OSR. I guess we call it OSR. OSR games. Um, I, I won't. I won't. I won't uh, fight you for that. It's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. What, whatever it is, it's fun. And I think the cool thing about about Merck Borg, beyond the fact that it's brilliantly um, laid out, um, a little hard to play with the book, but the bare bones edition is great. Um, but the beautiful book. But most importantly, they're pro creator. So they launch with like an, a totally open gaming license. So you have. I would argue you have a larger community of designers than you have players from Workborg. And I was thinking around like, how do we, how do we make, how do we emulate that? Or how do we do something close to that? And Zweihander, although it had this, it had a, it has a third party content program through DriveThruRPG, kind of like the DMs Guild, but it's, it's fairly restrictive. And that was due to the previous publisher I was working with. So now with this reforged edition through World of Game Design, we're going to just take better we're gonna take the shackles off everything it's gonna be the same approach like go create go 
crowdfund, go take it on Patreon, go take it on Kickstarter, like use the rules for what you will and make the thing that you want and, and please make money on it. Like, I hope you succeed um, and share it back because I think that's the best thing to do in service to the community is to um, let people create because I, I, I look backwards at, you know, my own, my favorite RPG of all time. It's not Zweihander, it's D&D, it's D&D VX. And OSE has been is super cool. And I love that people can take old school D&D and make what they want with it. It's like, that's the beautiful thing about this industry is you can kind of make your own things, despite what Wizards of the Coast wants you to do with their fifth edition stuff. Like you can't stop, people can't stop you from making five, from first edition D&D. And I kind of feel that if I can emulate even just a tiny part of that with Zweihander, like that's a win in my book because hopefully it'll inspire people to make their own games and make open gaming licenses and perpetuate this beautiful hobby slash industry that we we're all a part of. Yeah. Because I mean, the more people that are playing uh, it, it's, it, it helps. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. you know, even though somebody may be, you know, uh, you know, somebody's going to buy, let's say is one hand or product, just be interested in a zine. Mm -hmm. They'll look at it and they're like, Oh, this is cool. They'll go buy the book. They'll run it for their table. Yeah. You know, or if somebody hasn't played uh, one hand for a while, they'll get something new and they'll look at it and they'll they'll yeah. dust it off and get the, the it's it definitely helps keep. I think what you want to see is is people uh, energized and and still, you know, not just something that sits on a shelf because it's just yeah. it's a slow death there. It, exactly, it's um. I think about like the Halcyon days of the two thousands when D twenty was like a big thing and. Even during the D20 era, I mean, you weren't seeing like monthly or even quarterly releases from publishers. You were seeing like two releases a year. And um, that's one of the things that Zweihander kind of fell down, kind of where, where its faults were with the previous publisher was that they were unwilling to allow me and the creators of it to release more drip content. Because I think that we collectively, not just young younger generations, but we all collectively like expect drip campaign content where's my new adventure this month where's my new character where's my new character folio where's my new monster and so we go create our own things so being able to you know whether we collectively have the capacity to turn out that much content ourselves as publishers um, if we can't do it the community can and we'll support it by helping promote their stuff on our platform um, good, that's a winning combination well goodman games is i think has been as far as the company goes probably the premier for supporting oh, third-party content absolutely goodman games is doing amazing they've done amazing things i i i i adore their approach i love how they present themselves their books are great their writers are cool um they're a good company um and they and they make they make really fun stuff um, yeah and as far as if you want to publish content you you still have to run it by them mm -hmm. but it's it's mainly just from my understanding just to make sure there's nothing that's going to be you know problematic i mean they're, they're yeah. not going to say, oh, you need to change this adventure to because we think it needs to be a little harder or that they just don't want anything that would reflect poorly on their brand. Yeah. Short of that, I, they'll they'll support you. That's it. That's it's a, it's interesting. I, I wasn't aware that that's the way their third party uh, publishing work, but I can understand why that is. I think that Mothership, their third party programs the same way where you submit your manuscript yeah once it's complete then you resubmit it once it's through layout um because they're looking for uh you know you can't involve you know racist or sexist or like terrible bigoted yeah content. and i mean i think there's an i think there's an an, an interesting an other discussion to have around 
the ethics of policing content. Um, despite the fact that I am, I am, you know, my I wear my politics on my sleeve. I'm a pretty, I'm a, I'm a pretty far left socialist Democrat, but um, I'm also not pro censorship. Um, I think that if somebody wants to write something racist, like that's their fucking, that's it's on them, you know. Right. Like it's not my job to police that. The the community will sort that out. Um, the buyers will sort that out. But um, I, I think that most importantly, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's a whole different conversation. Um, however, I think it is important to, you know, to have those third party content programs because it does, it does sustain, it does sustain um, the, the RPG, the, the, the Goodman games in, in their case, Mothership, other, other systems as well. Um, and that's cool. Like, go forth and create things and the and the community will decide whether or not your stuff is good or not um and 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 and, and, and people if people are writing terrible content it's going to come out and people will talk about it and that's that's okay that's good let the community sort it out yeah i mean what's to me what's been interesting is the james uh Raggi, who's probably the one of the more controversial people mm-hmm. but uh yeah you know but he also is well he is I don't know that he himself is that controversial, but he's definitely has, you know, has uh, had friend published works of a person that was highly, yeah, highly polarizing. And, um, and that was, you know, uh, a situation that I think most people don't want to find themselves in. Um, yeah. But yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it, right. You got to figure out, I mean, short of having that sort of situation, you're right. Most stuff sorts it out. It's not a big deal, but man, occasionally, <laughs> <laughs> I, I i admittedly um i've talked to james raggy twice in my entire life the first time was at gen con 2018 he said hey look it's the shill um and oh, really then, yes and then in the evening i had a very lovely conversation with him and his girlfriend i think it's his wife now um but i found out that he you know he courts controversy and i think we know collectively who that person is um and he continued to support that person i don't want to want to get into that obviously no. but um the community will sort things out the community will decide like who is worth supporting who is not worth supporting and i don't know i the, the politics of it all is like it, it's i think it's less about which side of the wall you're on or whatever extreme you may believe i think at the end of the day though is that creators should create um and that you should create the things that you enjoy and you will find an audience probably no matter what it is um i mean there's there's an audience for tentacle points an audience for lolly right lolly anime there's a there's an audience for like terribly racist shit like fatal from barg's vicar or not is that fatal i don't know whatever book he did like is terribly racist there's going to be an audience for it um but i i you know i i wouldn't i wouldn't buy it i wouldn't support it the community will will sort it out for you you will find your people and you'll find the people who do not like it and they will, they will speak loudly about it. And that's, that's the beauty of being a creator and being a creative in a very socially aware space. Um, as, yeah. As Cause I think what happens is people are very shocked at just how quickly uh, things you know, like more recently, like Ed Greenwood um, just happened to, I think just uh, retweet or promote something or, and, he had no idea who this these people were or was yeah. and all of a sudden he's like you know, well, he's this old male so it's like whoa yeah <laughs> what just happened here ed greenwood is first off the man is a sweetheart yes uh and and i i 
I, I saw the response. Like I didn't hear what had happened, but I saw the response. I was like, what was this? And apparently he retweeted or something like that was like from somebody who was not a good person. And I saw the video and I was like, oh, Ed, like, no, not you, man. Like, you don't, <laughs> you know, it's like people who know, who have met him or know him or know his writing and know the kind of person he is, is like, Ed is not that kind of bad, is not as no. a bad guy. And it's, you know, once again, um, it's, uh, it's, we're oftentimes, I would say that in the social media circles, we're oftentimes not forgiving. Um, I, I have certainly been at the center of a, some controversy myself, um, particularly around piracy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but which, which that my views are changing and evolving um, because it is what it is. You know, I'm learning and growing. We always have to. But uh, I will say that uh, the social media circles are oftentimes not very forgiving. Um, and at the end of the day, the most important voices that you should be listening to are the people who you would take, you come to for advice. What's interesting yeah. is I didn't realize you were that guy. And then I was trying mm -hmm. to get a whole, get contact information from you because you're, I wasn't worked. Never raised my email. I don't think, I think it was going to people spam and I think you changed email. So I, I did a search yeah. and then I was all these people all angry and I, and I was um, over, over uh, with the trove. And then the accusations against you were things like uh, you're a capitalist <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah your works uh i think uh the zweinhander was derivative and i'm like well everything is like that's right like like have you, have you read any osr book before have you read <laughs> pathfinder have you read anything that's not strictly D, &D or pendragon like it's all derivative <laughs> derivative capitalist <laughs> yeah i know i don't you know and i did i don't know i'm not upset about that i mean people are gonna think what they think and and you know i i I, I hope they find catharsis in expressing those opinions very strongly online and emailing <laughs> me and taking photos of my house and posting them on 4chan. And... Are you serious? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. Uh, but that's, I, I can't, I, I legally can't talk about it, but all that that you said, um, I hope that people find catharsis and like expressing their anger about somebody's elf game <laughs> online. Cause at the end of the day, that is literally what we're talking about people pretending to be elves and dwarves in a basement. And it's not to demean the fact that what we do as professionals in this industry, you and I and others, but it, it is, we're talking about pretending to be other, to pretend to be running around with a bow and a sword and magic's missiles. And yeah. and if, if people have, that's how people want to express their frustrations and that helps them get through the day, good. Good on you. Go with God. Um, I hope it works out for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're a lot more generous about that than i am i'm just saying yeah. these people are nuts Get I, alive. I, you know i used to be pretty acerbic online and i had this i I've, I've had this ongoing dialogue with a dear friend of mine named kate and i was really struggling being an act a person on social media on twitter specifically because i i remember like when zweihander came out it was like praised for being inclusive in its artwork and its language this is something that you know i always saw like my friends around the table are representative in the book so the book should reflect that as well. So we use very gender inclusive language. We use a lot of different, we use characters and genders uh, throughout our art. That was typically not what you would see in dark fantasy art. And uh, conservative groups um, online who are small, but very loud, were very angry about it. Now the pendulum has, has, has swung the other way and people who are on the opposite side are saying it's a terrible work of racism. So um, it, it just goes to show, yeah, uh, and, you know, 
it, it and, and and you know once again it's like i at this point i was I, like in, in in literally in july uh i converted my personal twitter account to a brand account and i peaced out and i've never felt so much better about my life because i don't listen to all this like stuff that'll drag you down um because i because what i what i figured out this is the this is the kind of magic formula i was like okay so if I can, if it takes 240 characters on a Twitter post to post something, but the reality is, is that you spend five to 10 minutes researching before you post. So one, that you're informed and two, there's no such, such thing as nuance. So of course you're going to respond. And I realized like I'm wasting 30 minutes a day on Twitter when that could have been 700 words on my manuscript. That could have been me reading another RPG that would fulfill me. That would, could have been me getting up and going outside, taking a drink of water, doing a short walk, like doing things that are actively healthy. Yeah. So I, I left Twitter in July and, and now I just have that brand account. I don't, I don't interact with anyone, save for people who are talking about Zweihander on the, on the, the Twitter handle. Well, the thing and, too, it's like, even though you, that much time was used for it, it, it still bleeds over into the time afterwards. So it's, it's, yeah, it's poisoning, it does. It does. it's poisoning all your other time that when you do go for a walk, you're just like, I can't believe this, or I can't believe that. Yeah, and, exactly. I mean, if the, the, the thing to me, that's the thing that's most important to me as a creator is that, I mean, I, I love constructive criticism. Uh, I feed off of it. I mean, that's how we has how we learn. Um, as an RPG publisher of a of a of a system for Zweihander in particular, like constructive feedback has been the big driver for this. Right, because you cannot, so, yeah. you, even though you had your friends and you play tested it, it was you running the games. It, now that you've got, yeah, all these other people, they're providing feedback, uh, uh, yeah, play testing information yeah. for you. We we have a we have a Discord of around four thousand people and mm. and no it's 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 wild and it's a very very calm and tame place because we've done a really good job ensuring that it is a place where um we just don't we don't brook we don't brook any sort of harassment or like to call a flash bombing where you drop like drama and you peace out, um but the 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 people in the Zweihander Discord and the people on you know I've met in person at conventions that my friends who play have like given so much great feedback on the game. Like there's just, we, we, to me, the most important voices to listen to are the people who are playing the game and have opinions to offer about it, whether bad or good opinions. I mean, it's, it's, it's an opinion and that helps inform future design. Um, it's, it's the best thing that you can do as a publisher is to listen to your audience, not the broad audience and all social media, but your your audience, your people on Twitter or YouTube or Facebook that are engaging with your game um, and, and have experiences to share. And you should listen to people's experiences, not their second or third hand opinions about what your game may or may not be, right. because that's just noise. And to your point, that also seeps into your world beyond the screen. So to me, like... It, you know, this is kind of a long securitist way of coming around to saying that with what we're doing now, World of Game Design with Reforged, it is literally synthesizing like seven years of learnings. Um, we, in fact, we, we got this question, um, I think it was just today on Facebook, and somebody said, Well, I just bought the revised core rule book, which came out in 2017. Another person said, Well, I just bought the starter kit last year, it came out last year. Why are you re editioning? Um, and I was like, Well, it's not a new edition because it's backwards compatible. 
because uh, I, 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 I grind at the idea of re-edition a game that's only seven years old. Yeah. Um, because I don't want people's books that's on the shelves to be useless. Um, that is like, if I was thinking of it from a gamer's perspective, like if I couldn't take <laughs> my D&D modules and readapt them to the new system, like this big switch from like 3.5 to 4, um, that it was such a big shift. It's like, well, it's not really compatible anymore. So when I when we were talking about at World of Game Design, like what Reforged is, I said, well, one of the primary con- pr- principles is the thing we make will be informed by our users' feedback. It will improve the things that were misses when the initial book was written because there's there's content that, like I said, I'm embarrassed at. It's done there now. We're rewriting it. We have new writers on the team who have the right voices. It's going to be even more dark and visceral, um, which is great. We can lean a little harder on the things that we really like about it. Um, and it will be compatible with the books from 2017 and 2022. So uh, that to me is kind of the, I think it's the magic formula. Uh, we'll, we'll see. We still have to, I think, I think we still have to win people over. And that's up to us as a publisher to prove that Reforged is worthwhile looking into. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, but once again, it's it's all due to listening to the community of people who plays Zweihander and have, and I have, have the, the privilege of having contributed in small and very large ways to 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 making Zweihander what it is today. Not just buying books, but also like sharing their experience, whether I sold a hundred books back in 2016 yeah. um or whether we're while we're at now, um it's just it's just a it's a privilege to be able to do this. And um I don't know. I I, I don't I don't know about you. I know you were a creator as well, but it's you know it's it's one thing to create something you 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 kind of you're kind of showing a sense of vulnerability, I feel, when you write something, you put it out for the world to read. Um, from a philosophical perspective, I think there's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you're kind of showing part of yourself that you typically wouldn't show people. Um, so to me, that's really, I don't know, it's just, it's just really interesting stuff to think about. Well, I think too is, is when you put a thing out that's new, mm-hmm. it's speculation. Yes, yes. You, you are, in my very first thing I put out really made, I mean, it makes it 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 makes sense to me. It made sense, but mm-hmm. it, it what I did is I took um, it's called scoundrels. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea is having tools to be able to uh, to make um, any sci-fi or even modern game into a criminal game. So I kind of took some mm-hmm. so you can roll. There's tables, there's people, there's locations, so you can just easily roll and find stuff. But nobody was asking for it. Yeah, I'm just trusting my gut. Uh huh. And you don't know if your gut's right or not. Yeah. And so you, with what you're doing, at least you had feedback of people as you're going along. Uh, the net gave you probably the courage to put more money into it than you would have if it was just, yeah. you know. But <laughs> but still, you know, people could say, yeah, yeah, I'll buy it. And they may not. Yeah. And it's, so, yeah. It, so it's, it's, it's tough. So, so, you know, I succeeded enough for i think because it was uh i think it was just because of the uh covid with uh and with, was it during covid again my years i'm getting confused as i get older but yeah, I, it, yeah, it, it, really it, yes. it funded <laughs> it funded did well and i was i mean it didn't do gangbusters but it's just like you know i made more than a thousand dollars i was just like that's crazy nobody knows who i am that's 
awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> Nobody knows who that. I am. I'm I just throwing this that. thing out there. It's tied to no game system. I'm just throwing this thing out there. And, um, and so I think that's allowed me to have more confidence mm-hmm. in that what I think is worthy of putting out there that people also yeah. find it. So but I think to me, that's the hard part is you don't know. And you have this crazy idea. Like, I got this crazy idea. I want to do this thing. Well, doesn't mean anybody else doesn't think that's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah. I, I, I think it's just really cool about like the times we live in. Like I, I, as a kid, like even thinking about like, what does it take to publish a book was like unfathomable. Now um, anyone can publish, anyone can create. And, and I'm a, and I'm a big believer that you are a game designer the moment you house rule a system. Like that is your first step to becoming a quote creator. You write on the back of a napkin, you make a ruling at the table, like yeah. now you design something and it does take courage to put it out there because you may be, because who knows if they're going to, if they're going to believe in the thing you make. Well, I think there's two uh, things for me. It, it, there wasn't, my main concern was to put money into something and then it fail more so. But when I was doing the photography, there are people that would look at my pictures and they're like, Oh, I'd sell it. They're like farmer's market. They're like, Oh, I would love to do that. I'm just afraid people would say bad things about my photos. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking nobody does that. Like nobody no. walks around. It, maybe there's a rare occasion, but nobody walks around <laughs> art fairs or farmer's markets and start criticizing yeah. people's Correct. merchandise. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but they have this fear of being out in the open yeah, and people criticizing them. And I realize that that, that is a fear. And I think that's what holds people back is a fear of, of people not liking and, and criticizing yeah. them. Yeah, it's very true. I, I'm a, I, I think that no matter what size your audience or how many books you've sold, I don't care anybody who's ever published anything. Um, it doesn't matter what your size or your following is. It doesn't matter like how many YouTube followers you have or how much email you have or how many books you've sold. Like I said, um, everyone, every creator, I'm a, I believe has a, you know, has a fear, an innate fear of being judged because their creation may not be up to snuff or maybe the thing that you love isn't universally loved. And Yeah, and I will say there is a bit of that because I like reviews scare yeah. me. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, still. I, I can't read them. Like I... I will I will turn into like a, a prune and just wither off the vine. Um, I I I can only listen to feedback in Discord now because I just it it was just heartbreaking to read um, bad reviews. <laughs> it, it, critical reviews are okay, but I, I found like I'd be like, oh my god, I can't do this. Like it's dragging me down. And and once again, it's, these these are their people's experience with the with the game or whatever you know. But like I can't read reviews. Like I don't read reviews on Amazon ever. Like, oh, like that just it, it it's it's a, I get the same feeling reading reviews that I do watching videos on myself when recording. Like I can't rewatch things yeah. I record on my game table. I master the video and it goes off into the ether and I never look at it again. Like I don't want to hear my voice. I don't want to see my face. It's just so terribly embarrassing. And it's the same thing for reviews. Like I can't do it. I get that ugh, cringy feeling. I think there's I a problem in the Discord now. I've noticed with the Facebook or on Facebook where World of Games I posted uh, for the um, for the Hannibal RPG initially. Yes. Oh yes, uh, and they posted this was months ago i don't know if you saw it and people got like very negative they did they did yeah 
And I'm thinking, I don't think people realize, because I've even had some people post some stuff on my ads. I'm like, do you not realize that there's a real person that yeah. you're that you're talking to? Like when you yeah. say something snarky, it, there's a really a person there that's reading that. And it's their it's their their thing, and it's, I don't think people do. Yeah, it's not like this. Like we're we're not talking about like the 800 pound gorilla in the room. It's not. Yeah, it's not like a D and D suit <laughs> who's like issuing ai to post ads like it's it's literally a person yeah. who's, who's either creators like you and i yeah. or maybe they're getting paid a pittance to like interact with people on social media and now you're ruining their day and you know that i mean i think we get we i think collectively not i think the royal we maybe not you and i but probably you and i too why not let's yeah. include everybody we can all we can all be more compassionate online yes. especially around creative endeavors but gosh, I mean, it's hard to turn away from a train wreck. It's really hard not to like respond to something you feel passionately about one way or the other. And that's where I kind of adopt my, or have learned to adopt my live and let live, but I will not, my, my hard line is I will not watch myself in videos and I will not read reviews because I just, I get so terribly embarrassed. Yeah, it's it's strange. I've had one person even on Facebook ads uh, for I think Gary's Appendix Four said, "Well, I hope this one. I, know, I hope it's better." I can't. I made some remark about it, and then somebody kind of pressed him on it, and he and he was like, "This is just just a, the um, a Facebook ad." Mm-hmm. And then he's like, "Well, I like the best area, but the, the articles are just a little too." Es- he didn't say esoteric, but it was just like, "But that's what it's about." I mean, it's like that's right. <laughs> Well, it's never yeah. kind to hear though. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That's yeah. I, I, every time somebody shares with me, like this type of story, I'm like, I feel so bad. I get it. But I he keeps buying there, them though. It's just so terrible. Yeah. He still, but, it's worth yeah. It, but he still buys them. But why is he complaining? Like, I don't understand. Like, he's like, I'm definitely going to back your Kickstarter, but let me tell you how bad it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, man. Uh, just, just please put the money in the, in the pill and we'll move on. Um, I, I had an interesting conversation uh, about a year ago about um, the philosophy of firing a customer. Um, there was a, a Kickstarter. Well, I think everyone knows what it is. Avatar that had some very serious heated back and forth uh, in the comments uh, that where they had received a product and they and they and they had posted multiple times in comments over the, the year and a half of just general dissatisfaction. And uh, of course, Kickstarter won't let you delete comments. So comments have to stay, even yeah. if they are literally libelous or wrong. And it led to this conversation between uh, another person who I won't name, but uh, she and I were talking about like um, the ethics of firing customers. And I've heard different opinions. One, Some people say, well, if they're paying you money, who cares? Just let them continue paying money. I've already heard people say, block them and move on don't let them buy your stuff they don't deserve to see your creations what do you think like where do you stand on that so somebody was telling me uh, uh, who was it it was i was interviewing somebody uh and they said it was a another creator i think it was it was burning wheel and they were wanting to buy it and they made some sort of comment and it was luke crane was standing there yeah and he's like and they didn't realize it was luke crane he's like no i'm not gonna say this book and they were shocked like no you this book's not for you you cannot buy it and he would not sell it to him 
Um, yeah. I, I think, uh, I don't think we really have a good way of firing customers though. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know the right answer. Um, I, I truly don't because I'm a, I mean, if somebody wants to pay money for your thing and they hate you or hate the writing, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, that's where I run into the, I just can't, I just can't watch social media because it is, because I will net like, if I, I can't even like, I have, now I'm in the position where I'm like having to like hide comments on paid ads because people post just terrible stuff. Well, but, gonna, people. but, but my, my general approach is if it's not, if it's not, if it's general dissatisfaction with a product or a person, I don't block them. Uh, but if it is something that would oh, you're talking about with Facebook and how that I've yeah. not had anybody do anything that I felt really crossed the line. Good, good. So the one criticism, hey, I hope this is not, I hope this is not as boring as the last ones. Like that yeah, was kind of annoying. But but other people stood up, said some things, and he explained yeah. himself. Once he explained himself, I understood, and, and he also made it very clear to everybody when he explained it that he's just complaining about being what it says it's about about being. You know, mm -hmm. but I've not, I'm very fortunate. I've not had anybody just say terrible things. Yeah. I think it's that, but going back to world of game design with that Hannibal. Yeah. I, I remember mean, this. I remember this thread. I remember the exact one you're talking about. I remember the ad because there was, I was surprised to see so many comments on it. And you, you could, I, you could tell the story because I, I kind of jumped in the middle was kind of watching it unfold. But I don't remember what it was, but I know it got several people. So what happened was, I can't remember what they were criticizing. I mean, some people saying, I don't understand how you can make a game out of this. Well, that's fine, but but they're going to try, at least, you know, do it. But I, yeah. and some people were criticizing, like, this is just a cash grab. I'm thinking, that's not really a cash grab is when you pay for an IP and then you hope to generate enough sales to be able to, to pay back yep. some of that money. Like, there's no cash grab there. Yep. And then some people took it to the next level and I don't remember what it was, um, but I do know that, you know, some of the people uh, associated with World Game Design got pretty emotional. And... It, uh, so uh, I, I, I am the dev editor on Hannibal RPG, and, and, and I have this privilege because I've recently joined them as my, they're not my publisher. And I can tell you every single person on that project has a deep passion for the show. Yeah. Um, and and it is it is not a cash grab. It is, I there there I think we can look back historically and say, oh, this game was probably just like a cheap way to like exploit an IP and people will be in and out and that's it. We'll get one game and they're gone. Um I, Hannibal, you know, I, I, Zach can tell the story far more eloquently than I can, as can Jared. Um but the way I actually first met World of Game Design was at a small convention here in Kansas City. And I met Zach for the first time. And he said, you know, I'm working on the Hannibal RPG. And I'm like, what? That's my favorite show. One of my favorite shows ever. I love Brian Fuller. I love the universe he built around Hannibal and how weird and queer forward and bloody and visceral that show was and how it explored the psychology. The psychology of not just like what it means to be a murderer, but somebody who's also like supposedly the good guy that also like struggles with mental illness. And, and I would, and I was thinking like immediately I was like, well, there's a reason this game can exist. And the answer is call of Cthulhu. 
Uh, Call of Cthulhu is learning about investigators investigating tentacle monsters who will mon who will murder you. So I think if Call of Cthulhu came out today, the reaction may have been very different than saying, how could you make a Hannibal RPG? Because there's a lot of depth in the story and themes in Hannibal that makes it a very cool investigative story, investigative game. But uh, I think if you're going to do a cash grab, so to speak, that would not be, be the IP. It wouldn't be Hannibal. No, there's no. other IPs <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah, Hannibal's the last one I would choose for a cash grab. Monty Python's Flying Circus would probably be more of a cash grab. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a fun one. Uh, they they, they did. They're doing work it. on. Yeah, they're doing oh, they really. Yeah, oh, raise over a million dollars. Oh, really? Oh my god! Funeral. Yeah, I love it. That's great. Good for them. Good for them. <laughs> but I just uh, mean like that's a pretty obscure one, and I think the problem is is like there's an that's probably an underserved is is whatever that mystery episodic. Yeah, um, the the so the Hannibal it's what's as as a as a fanable as we call ourselves, uh, not it world games but people who are fan, Hannibal fans, um, they because we're just waiting for the show to eventually get to have be continued, because Mads Mikkelsen and and the actor who played Will Graham and it's just a great cast, um, we're hungry for content and the la the most recent thing we got was like a cookbook like last year, and of course I bought it because I'm I'm a huge yeah. Hannibal fan. Um, and like, <laughs> and I, I've always, I've always loved, I've always loved Mad Mikkelsen. Like he was in those Danish, uh, gangster films, the Pusher trilogy. Um, so I'd always loved Mads Mikkelsen. And when he, when he was in Hannibal, um, I love the fact that he mumbled his way through the damn role because his English was still not that strong in the first two seasons. But, um, <laughs> regardless, it's a really cool show. And I was like over the moon, like when I found out that World of Games, I was doing it. I'm like, let me write something for it. just something. I don't care. Let me write 10 words. Let me write a hundred words. Let me edit it. I don't care. Let me have some part in it because I love Hannibal. So that is the last game. That's the last IP you grab do for a cash grab. But, yeah. Um, I think people are going to be really surprised to see how the game works. It is the, 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 the pitch is that you are FBI agents of different professions and it's a kind of murderer of the week, so to speak. And um, without spoiling what the gameplay pattern is, it does eventually all lead up to, and Hannibal fans will know this, it always leads up to a dinner with Dr. Hannibal Lecter and whether he can turn you toward your inner darkness. And it's a really cool game loop. And um, I've, I don't know, it's been a real privilege to be able to work on it so far. Um, but yeah, I remember that thread on Facebook and I was like, oh gosh, I'm not, I'm not getting in the middle of this, but I love people's perspective on it because they're like, why? How could you make this into a game? And um, I think looking back, like there are games like the Tales from the Crypt RPG um, and the Laser Tag LARP that came out from TSR. Yeah, uh, that probably were not good games. The Dallas TV Show RPG. Somebody uh, bought that. I I, I don't know. I own it. Yeah, I own it. It's great. Oh, really? Yeah, it's great. It's it's I I consider it the the it's the predecessor to fate i feel uh it is because you play it it is like you have playbooks ish like the the game reminds me a lot of fate the way that it works you play a character you play in a story there's a specific story there is it's highly narrative you do moves um it's 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 kind of ahead of its time it's not a good game um but i will tell you the game that i have fallen in love with and it's called a little game made in 1984 called Dragon Raid. Are you familiar with this game? No. Dragon Raid was written by a Methodist psychologist for Christian youth 
to lure them away from D&D and to play an RPG that is essentially D&D on hard mode. Um, I've had this RPG in my collection for years. I bought it at like a thrift store for 15 bucks. It's still in shrink wrap. And the box is huge. It's like this big. It's massive. And it has, I kid you not, 12 booklets inside of it. And there are critical injury charts. There is a hex grid that you crawl with figures. There is a built-in world. Your spells are literally Bible verses. It's it's fascinating. Uh, the game that they created in 1984, um, up to including, uh, they had opportunity attacks. Before opportunity attacks were everything in D and D, uh, it's super fascinating. Like once you remove the fact that it was created for Christian Christian youth ministers to run their alternative to D and D. Um, it's a really interesting game, and I and I opened it the other day because I bought a tape deck, and it comes with a tape, and the tape tells you how to create characters, what the game is about, and it guides you through the character creation process. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, you know, in some ways, people think of you know something like that being backwards in a lot of ways, but actually, yeah. it wasn't. They're saying, "Hey, we really like this thing." Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't a D and D is a tool of the devil. It's like here's an alternative to D and D that can be used as a learning exercise for the Bible. And, and as somebody who works in preschool games, um, the way that the, the the design concept for preschool games is it's not just about matching games. It's like games that can engage the imagination to where you can you, you're not being educated. The big E. You're, you're learning as you play. Yeah. So this game says you are going to learn the Bible through the act of a role-playing game. And I, I think that people, you know, looking backwards, who don't know about the game, probably judge it because it's a, it's a Christian RPG. Yeah. But it is it is fascinating. Like it, that as, as a tool to teach the Bible, like um, look at the programs that D&D is now running in schools. Like learn math, learn how to write English, learn all these other things by using D and D in the classroom. Like it, that that's happening now. It's been happening for a while. I think kind of unofficially like through D and D school clubs, but uh, wizards of the coast and D and D studio is now doing it as a form of education in schools. I think it's a really interesting concept, even though the fact that I may not agree with the material, I think it's, I mean, <laughs> I, I cast a spell, John three sixteen. like it's, it's just, and there are literally the spell cards in there are Bible verses. And it tells you what the Bible verse does. I think to me, the danger of that is yeah. I would think would be uh, of heresy. Like you have the opportunity now to create heresy, <laughs> you know, where if you're yes. playing DD, you're not going to create heresy, <laughs> but now you give these kids, have you, I've never played, but uh, 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 dogs in the vineyard. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I, Robin. Uh, I forget the author's name, but yeah, I've read that. It's really cool. It's yeah, so your 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 quote unquote uh, uh, Mormon, but no, not Mormon missionaries. Your yes. teenagers who are the law. They are the instrument of governmental and church justice, uh -huh. and they have a gun, and they're teenagers. <laughs> it's, like... it's it's fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I I'm a you know I. I know people, maybe you probably know this, but maybe some of the viewers don't that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, one of the best adaptations of the Mormon, the the book of Mormon is Dragonlance. Uh, the, the discs and the shackle, like it's the, it's like, it's totally like a Mormon analogy, like the return of the gods. Like, it's just very interesting. Like how, I don't know if it was intentional, 
but it reads like ha- having grown up around a lot of people who were more who were Mormons and having gotten a Mormon camp when I was a kid. Like I'm like, oh my god! Like, I think it would have to be intentional. Yeah, I don't think that? for uh, yeah. I think it has to be. I don't know that. It, it, I, I mean, what do we build from things that we know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and the Mormons. I mean, they've got some stuff that that is I would say is considered pretty unusual by by most people's the rest of the United States, as far as mm-hmm. non-Mormons, unusual. So that's that's territory people aren't aware of. So you can play with that and not create any problems with your religion. Yeah. But be able to present it in a way. It, it's it's like redemption or, you know, people sacrifice themselves for greater good. I mean, it's, you mm-hmm. know, very a, a Christian theme, but that can be played yeah. over and over in different ways. And it's still meaningful, even though it may be, you know, playing on that same biblical theme. It's still just a very powerful narrative tool so why not use oh yeah it? i i uh people people sometimes sometimes ask me like what's the what's the what's the primary source of stories for you and i'm like it's the bible man the old testament is fucking crazy and in, in, in a sense like if you're to take the if if, if we assume that the, okay so if we assume if we stripped all the christianity from the old testament like it is a wild read like it's it's like reading the silmarillion um but but billions of people believe in it uh, and, and it's got some great stories in it that are, that you can use and kind of carry forward into, into, you write about the things that you know, right? So like the dis and the shackle and dragon, yeah. things, you know, um, and, and I think that the Bible is a really interesting source to draw from. I mean, I think that a lot of iconography that, um, people use in Merck Borg was, uh, from an artistic perspective was drawn from all of the anti D and D literature, that came out in the eighties and they leaned in hard to the, into the aesthetic. And that's kind of the, the direction, the design direction of Merkborg. And it's recognizable because it's anti-establishment and it's clearly rooted in like anti, and it's rooted in Christianity and, and people draw and write about the things that they know. And the stories in Merkborg are fascinating, fascinating about the end of the world. And it's clearly like Catholic allegory all yeah. the way uh monsters and all uh and it's 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 really cool and i think that's the that's what i love about rpgs like we're able to kind of draw that not just like the fictional religion stuff like of like greek and, 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 and like greek and roman gods but like the modern ideals of religion and how you kind of take that and you put it through the lens of a role right. playing well game. you say what if the world is real what if their worldview was real what if the greeks worldview was real Oh yeah, and we That's don't true. do that. We just say, "Well, they believe in gods, and God's going to spell her." But, but what if it really was real? Oh, we're fucked. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> the world's screwed, man. Yeah, um, <laughs> because the the, lar- the world's largest religion is, you know, it's not Christianity, and it's 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 not Mormonism. Yeah. Um, so we're all fucked. So, yeah. um. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's that's there's a lot of opportunities, but uh, with being able to capitalize experiences within an RPG, that's yeah. something I find enjoyable. But anyway, uh, Daniel, I think we're hitting the time space continuum. Yeah. I think we're we're hitting two hours, which I, I try not to do, but occasionally <laughs> it happens. <laughs> no, I, I uh, thank you for having me on. I'm re- I'm really glad to talk to you. I'm I'm so sorry about missing last week. Uh, just had this like series of 
family events and I it just completely slipped my mind. I'm oh, so no worries. Um, no, I've I've done I've I've done <laughs> worse. <laughs> but what's it's been interesting is I mean it was pretty happenstantial. We we met at Gen Cons over at mm -hmm. the uh, Wagby yeah. booth, and uh, it's taken a while to to get you on here. But I'm absolutely uh, excited that I've finally made it happen. Yeah, I'm, well, thank you again. I really appreciate it, and, and continue making cool shit. Uh, oh. Well, you I, too, and I'm I'm looking forward <laughs> to the stuff that you're coming out. Yeah, I have I do have this the box. The <laughs> uh, I've got the box Zweinhander uh, set. I haven't opened it yet. Uh, the the starter set. So uh, I start up a new group with my kids and and some other people. So That's I think great. that'll be one of the ones we'll be breaking out and trying that for uh, uh, for the first time. Yeah, and if I, if we catch each other in next convention, I'd be more than happy to run you through a game. Ooh, Let's yeah. Let's make it happen. <laughs> <It'd> be awesome. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks again. Take care. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it, man.